Amen. So thankful for our worship team and how they lead us in worship this week and every week. Thank you, guys. Well, good morning, guys. It is good to see you. If you would, go ahead and grab a Bible and turn with me to the book of Judges. If you didn't bring a Bible, we always have them available for you on the way into the worship space. Find it on your phone. However you want to get there, I want you to be able to follow along with us as we continue our study through the book of Judges in Judges chapter 4. The book of Judges is in the Old Testament. It's near the beginning of your Bible, and it is the story of the judges that God gave to his people to lead his people. And as we look back at their story and we see their life and leadership, we're learning how we too might lead others to experience more of God. And we say that every week. The reason we're spending so much time in Judges looking at their life and leadership is because we believe that as followers of Jesus, God has called us to lead others to experience more of God, more of his power and his presence so that they can experience God the way we've been Uh, able to experience God. And so whether you are at home or at work or at school or somewhere else, God has called you where you are for a reason to lead others to experience more of him. So we got a lot of ground to cover today. If you got your Bibles, Judges chapter 4. Judges chapter 4. It starts this way. It says, And the people of Israel, God's people, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. All right, so that's how the story starts. Not exactly the, the, the most exciting way to start a story, but the Bible is always honest, and it says, again, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, which we're reading that, and we think, again? Like, we've seen the same cycle. If you've been walking with us through this study, we're starting to see the same cycle repeated over and over and over. Every time a judge dies, Israel sins. The people of God reject God. God gives the people what they want. He says, if you want to walk away from me, you are free to walk away from me. Go ahead and walk away from me. They end up oppressed, suffering at the hands of the things and the people they chose to serve. They cry out to God, and then God sends a judge to lead his people back to him. It's a crazy cycle, and we see it over and over again, but the Israelites just continue to run it on repeat. Which, if it continues to be presented to us, we should stop and unpack it. Because the story starts this way. It says, in, in Judges chapter 4, verse 1, it says, In the people of Israel, which were God's chosen people in the Old Testament, the people that God chose to establish as a nation so that generations later, Jesus would come from those people to redeem the entire world so that all people could be his people. But the people of God, the people of Israel in the Old Testament, again, did what was evil in the sight of of the Lord. Again, did what was evil. What was the evil they did? We don't know. He doesn't tell us. Um, And I think he doesn't tell us for a reason, because he wants to, to just kind of show us what the Israelites were constantly doing, and that is they were constantly walking away from God and walking in the way of the world in which they lived. And the Bible doesn't often tell us the evil, the specific evil. Now, we see examples of it. We see that the people of Israel would serve these false gods. They would literally trade the creator God who created them, who led them out of Egypt, to establish them as a nation, to serve man-made gods, literally like things of stone and wood that they created. And I look at that, and I try to wrap my mind around why in the world would someone worship something they made? 
Like, there's a lot of stupid things I do, but I think about, like, why would you worship something you made? Like, if you made it, you are superior to it, right? Like, if you created it, if you're the creator, you are superior to it. And they would worship these sticks and stones. And I look at them, I think, how stupid is this? I realize we do the same thing. Like, we may not worship idols of sticks and stones, but we will idolize our kids and our careers, things that we have created or been part of, and we will serve them thinking that we can get from them things that God cannot give us. And so we know the people of God are constantly tempted to leave God and follow the idols that they had created, thinking that they were more expedient uh, and more controllable than God. They would uh, marry the foreign people living in the land where they were living. And now we think like marry foreign people, that doesn't seem like that strange of a thing. But in those days, the foreign people came with foreign gods. It wasn't just that they were a different nationality or from a different country. In those days, the foreign, the foreign people served foreign gods. And have you ever noticed, um, we might not think that's like that big of a deal, but have you ever noticed that the longer people are married, the more they start to look alike? Have you ever noticed that? Like you look around, it's like, man, you got married, you were, you know, both individuals, but you've been married 10, 15, 20, 25 years, and all of a sudden people start to look alike. They dress alike, they smell alike, they eat the same thing when they go out to dinner. And it's just like, it gets weird all of a sudden. And in the Bible days, like the people were starting to look like, because they would marry uh, these foreign, foreign people, they would start to look like them, meaning they were serving foreign gods and they would start to look like the foreign gods, which is so crazy because all through the scripture, all through the scripture, God called his people to be holy, to be set apart. He called them out of the world to show the world how God called them to himself. But they were constantly, they were called out of the world, but they're constantly cuddling up to the world, trying to be more like the world than be more like God. So we don't know exactly in Judges chapter 4 what the evil is, but it's probably a little bit of all the things. Serving foreign gods, intermarrying with foreign people, um, choosing to follow their own way and the way of the world instead of the way of God. And so what did God do? God did then what he does today. He just gives them what they want. We said this every week, the wrath of God poured out on his creation is he really just gives us what we want. And that itself uh, should scare us because what we want often does not lead to what we really need. It says he sold them into the hands of Jabin, who oppressed them cruelly for 20 years. God just gave the people, like, you want to serve their gods? You want to serve their people? You want to intermingle with them? Then go be with them. And God sold them into the hand of this enemy nation who oppressed them cruelly. And this is how temptation and sin works today. Sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Like, they... uh, Ehud died in the lack of a godly leader. They cozied up to the culture in which they were living. They started following the way of the world. They started making small compromises, which, led to, which ultimately led to captivity. And before they knew it, they found themselves entertaining sin, enslaved to it. They ended up being oppressed by the people and the powers that they put up with. And it just shows us, like, if we entertain sin, we, are, we, are, we will become enslaved to it. Here's the thing, we all face the same temptation today, but even more what I want to focus on is without a godly leader to stand in the gap, this is the way the world goes. 
Without a godly leader standing in the gap, this is the way the world goes. The world does not go in the direction of God. The world will drift in the direction of its strongest desires. And before they realize it, whether they recognize it or not, they become enslaved to them. And so in this story, it says, the people of Israel again did was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Ehud was a uh, fearless leader of God's people. He went before them. He led them out of captivity from the, the Midianite king who was oppressing them. But after Ehud's life ended, the people again began to drift back in the direction of their desires. And so the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor, the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth, Haglam. And here's verse 3. It says, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. For he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. I don't think, as we turn the page week after week from one judge to the next, and we see the story of God's people continue to unfold before our eyes, that they wander into sin thinking, man, this is going to get hard. But every time we turn the page, the next generation that stumbles into sin and entertains the things that God called them out of, they end up enslaved to it, and they get so entrenched in it that they can't find a way out of it. Here they're enslaved to a king who had 900 chariots of iron. In those days, those were like the tanks of the battlefield. Like one chariot could mow down thousands of people. They would literally just run these chariots of iron through the battle lines and just wipe out the standing armies uh, of Israel. And Sisera had 900 chariots. The people of God found themselves so entrenched in the things of this world that they were enslaved to it and they could not get out of it which just shows us, like, they didn't enter the relationship with these enemy nations thinking they would end up enslaved, but they ended up enslaved nonetheless. This is the way sin works. Like, this is the way the world, when we look around, works. I don't think the world thinks, man, I want to make a wreck of my life. I want to become enslaved, but we begin to entertain things of this world, and we end up enslaved to it. And it happens, like, there's, like, obvious sin examples, but I think the scariest things are the things that are not so obvious, when we start like looking at like, man, what do we want? The world celebrates wealth. It is the scorecard of the world. So we go after wealth. There's nothing wrong with having wealth. But if we go after wealth and we make it our God, we end up enslaved to a career that we hate that's keeping us from our family and the things that matter most because more than anything else, we just want to make a few dollars. Or, it's, or you end up enslaved when you start compromising on things like relationships. Like you're, we end up so afraid that we're going to end up alone that we, we just settle for a guy or a girl who does not love God the way that we love God. And before you realize that you're married to someone who's not showing up with you at church on Sunday, who's not leading you closer to God. I think there's other things that he's even like... Um, more simple, but can be just as dangerous. Like we start looking for influence and affirmation from the world. I watch these like uh, social media influencers on social media, and I don't understand it because I don't understand social media. But like I look at them and I think like these people they they apparently make a pretty substantial living selling whatever they're selling on social media. But but then I realize like every step they take has to be documented, right? Like they're enslaved to social media. It's their career. It's they're looking for affirmation and influence. And like you could go down the list one thing after the next. But like we, what I'm trying to communicate is like we don't drift in the direction of God. We drift in the direction of our greatest desires. And if we're not intentional, the world drifts away from God to satisfy our desires. And like the people of Israel, we end up enslaved to the things that we entertained. And so what does God do? God sends a judge. 
we're in this series because we look at the world around us and we see that this is the direction the world goes. It's the way the world has always gone away from God in the direction of their desires. But God is constantly sending his people to draw people back to him. The next verse in verse 4 says, Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. And so here's the thing. The people of God sin. So what does God do? He sends a judge to invite the people to walk back with him. This is how gracious God is. The people of God are suffering because they've strayed so far from God, and God, in his mercy and in his grace, sends a person who knows him to lead the people back to him. And this is who the judges are. I guess we should clarify this week in and week out, because when we think of judges, what do we think of? We think of someone sitting in a courtroom uh, behind the bench in a long black robe, banging a gavel, making decisions, deciding court cases. That's not really the judges in the Bible days. The judges in the Bible days, they were just leaders who knew God, who could hear his voice, who had decided they had enough of moving in the direction of the world, they could discern the direction that God wanted his people to go, and they would step in and lead his people. The judges in the Bible were just people that knew God. They knew his word. They knew his law. They could hear his voice. They could discern the direction that God wanted his people to go, and they had the courage to stand up and say, this is who God is, and this is where God is leading. And it was so rare in those days for people to know God, that people were coming from all around to this random palm tree where this woman named Deborah was sitting to hear the voice of God. They would come from miles around just to hear what Deborah had to say because Deborah knew God. And I think it's true today. I think the same thing is true today. Like people, if you're following Jesus and you're trying to be a leader where you are, it can get discouraging, isn't it? Like, I can get discouraged. Like, I've invited the same person to follow Jesus for so long, this friend, this family, this neighbor, this coworker. It's like another Easter is coming. I know what they're going to do. They're going to give me another invite card. I've invited this guy five years in a row. He's yet to show up at church. And it can get discouraging. I wonder how often Deborah would go out to the palm tree and think, like, this is the office that God gave me, like a palm tree. Like, he could have given me a long black robe and a gavel in a courtroom, but he sent me to a palm tree. But so often I think people might ridicule you for following God until the moment that they realize their life requires a word from God. And then all of a sudden, you're consistently showing up where God has called you to be will put you in the perfect position to share with him the things that God wants to say. Like Deborah showed up. We read these stories and we just kind of move right past it. But Deborah every day showing up at the palm tree. The palm, she showed up so much that they named the palm tree after, right? The palm of Deborah. And the people begin to know, this woman knows the Lord. There's something different about her. She's wise uh, beyond her own wisdom. She knows the Lord. And all of a sudden, people started coming because they wanted to hear a word from God. They wanted help deciding the direction that God was calling them to go as a family, calling their clan to go, calling their career. They show up and they ask Deborah for a word from God. Deborah was sharing, sharing the word of God. She was a prophetess. Uh, she was wise enough to discern the will of God because Deborah knew God. Deborah knew God. Now, before we go any further, it's interesting to me, even intriguing, that this judge, this fourth judge in Israel, is different than all of the other judges we've read about so far and all the judges we'll read about after this because this judge is a woman. Do you notice that? The first three judges, all men. 
All the judges after this, all men. And I think it's worth mentioning here for a moment because I think the church, not this church, because you would never say anything bad about this church, but the church sometimes gets a bad reputation, and rightfully so, because people will look at the church and say they don't afford women an opportunity to have influence. They don't afford women an opportunity to lead. And we're in this leadership study, and we're making our way through the Bible, letting the Bible speak for itself, and we see that God has elevated this woman named Deborah, who was wise in the way of God, to a position of influence and leadership. In fact, from the very front cover to the very end, when we look in God's word, God is always elevating women above, uh, above where their world would ever afford them the opportunity to go. In fact, some of the most influential people in the story of God's goodness and grace, the gospel, were women. Now, I want to stop there because I don't want the church to continue to perpetuate this idea that women can't lead well. All through the Bible, women lead. Deborah was a prophetess. She was uh, uh, speaking the word of God. She was a judge. She was discerning God's direction for other people's life. So God called Deborah to a position of significant influence in leadership. At the same time, the church can stand up and, and um uh, go so far to, to stifle the leadership and influence of women. It can also go the other direction, just completely dismiss what God clearly says. To be clear, this is another sermon for another day, maybe in Genesis, but God did not create men and women to be the same. He created us differently. The Bible shows us he created us to complement one another as we represent our creator to the world. It says God made man in his image, in the image of God he created them, man and woman. That there's these two sides of God in the, for the, the church to represent God to the world, it needs men and women. He didn't create men and women to be the same, but he created us to complement one another as we represent God to the world. And I think about this like... In my own life, I see the difference. I think it's obvious. Like, I, I stop here because the world gets so confusing and people start to take things out of context. But isn't it obvious that God created us differently? It doesn't mean that men are smarter than women or women are smarter than men. It doesn't mean that men are stronger than women or women are stronger than men. The, the strength is a different kind of strength. But God created us to complement one another, to make him known to his creation. Uh, if you've been with us for a while, my wife and I are having our second child. And I was thinking about it this week. I get so excited. I tell everybody, hey, we are having a baby. To which my wife always says, we are not having a baby. I am having a baby. You don't have to have the baby. And I was like, yeah, but, you know, I was involved. And she said, no, 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 you'd have to participate in the fun part. Now I have to figure out how to carry this baby for the next nine months and figure out how to get this baby out of me. Like, your job is more or less done. We are not having a baby. I am having a baby. And I thought, like, that's the perfect example of the strength that God gives women. Uh, I've heard it said many times, and I say, I've heard it said in jest, but I think it's true. Like, if it were up to men you know, to have children, we would not have lasted more than one generation, right? Like, we wouldn't have done it. Women are uh, called to sustain creation, to serve the church in significant ways. And we could dive down into all the details, um, but I think we'd, we'd kind of be chasing our tail here. What we want to point out is that God creates men and women to significant leadership roles. Different roles, but significant roles. The only role in the Old Testament that was not available to a woman was the role of a priest. In the New Testament, we see that women are serving in every capacity in the church except for the role of elder. There's a headship that God has created for the protection of his church and the women in his church, but that doesn't 
uh, absolve women of a call to lead. In fact, Deborah is one of the greatest leaders in all the Bible. I'm so privileged, I'm so grateful that we, we serve a church and some of our greatest leaders are, are, are women. They uh, lead from kids ministry to the stage on Sunday and everything in between because God calls his people to represent his church to the world. I think Deborah's greatest desire and her calling on her life was to know God and lead others to follow him. Deborah's greatest desire was to lead, to know God and to lead others to follow him, to, make, to lead others to hear his voice. Here's the thing. Deborah didn't have to lead like every other judge. Deborah didn't have to become like the men who went before her or the men who went after her to have significant influence in the way that God called her to lead. She had to discern God's call on her life. And in doing so, she saved Israel. But hear how she did it. It says, now Deborah was a prophetess. The wife of Lapidoth was judging Israel at the time. Verse 5, she used to sit under the palm tree, palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent, verse 6, she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. This is the verse that stood out to me in Deborah's story. Deborah is this incredibly wise woman who hears God's voice and is following him. In fact, it's becoming so known to the people of Israel that she loves the Lord and hears his voice and knows uh, his wisdom, that they're flocking to her to hear a word from God. And she sends to a man named Barak, and she summons him. He didn't come to the tree. She summons him. She, he wasn't even coming to hear God's voice. But she says, I want you to come. And when he comes, she asks the question, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you to save Israel? Has he not commanded you to find 10,000 soldiers and to go and fight against this enemy who is oppressing Israel? Deborah's greatest calling was to help others hear the call of God. Barak was off doing his own thing, not listening to the voice of God. I think God was trying to do something in Barak's life. I'm convinced that God had already tried to tell Barak that he wanted to accomplish some incredible things with him for his glory, and Barak wasn't hearing him. Now, we don't know why. We could probably guess probably the same reasons that we don't always hear God's voice. There's too many distractions. He turned up the noise of the world. He was too busy uh, trying to uh, gratify his own desires than to hear desires of God. Maybe he just didn't have enough desire for God. Maybe he didn't sit down and spend time with God in his word. Maybe he was just dumb. We don't know why Barak didn't hear God's voice. But Deborah knew that God had called Barak to something that he hadn't even wrapped his mind around. And so she sent and she summoned him and she said to him when he came, has not God commanded you? Has not the Lord, the God of Israel commanded you to gather these 10,000 soldiers and go and free Israel? I wrote in my notes, some of the greatest leaders, if not the greatest leaders, are those who can lead others to hear God's voice. And there's this part of us that we all want to be a mighty military leader. We all want to be the general leading the army, but who is it that's giving directions and who is it that can help discern the direction that God gives? I don't know exactly what it was that was distracting Barak, but I know that God was calling him to accomplish immeasurably more and Barak could barely hear him. So it was Deborah's job to help Barak hear the call of God's call of God on his life. 
And here's the thing. It's scary to not hear God's call because without God's clear conviction, without his call, we lack clarity. And when we lack clarity, we lack confidence. And when we lack confidence, we lack the courage to be the person that God has called us to be. That's what's going on with Barak. Verse 8 says, Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you'll not go with me, I will not go. I don't think Barak at this point had yet really understood the call of God on his life. He showed up and, and maybe he had had some promptings along the way about the incredible things that God was calling him to do, but he had, he had turned down the voice of God and turned up the voice of the world, his own desires over the desires of God. And Deborah summons for him and he comes because he's heard great things about this woman. He shows up and she says, has not God called you something incredible? Gather 10,000 people and lead them into battle. This is the call of God on your life. And Barak's like, I'm not really sure. Like, I hear what you're saying, but I'm not sure if this is what God is going to do. So he lacked clarity, and he lacked conviction, and he lacked courage. So he says to Deborah, he says, if you go with me, then I'll go. Like, Deborah, like, if you'll hold my hand as we go into battle, then I'll go. But I'm not going to go on my own. And here's the point. As I think about how we lead others, this would be an easy point for me if I were in Deborah's shoes to demean Barak. Like, what do you mean? Like, what do you mean? How the king of kings, the Lord, the God of Israel, who led us out of Egypt, who's accomplished immeasurably more than we can wrap our mind around. He is calling you to exchange the common, everyday, ordinary life that you've been living for as long as you've been alive to a life of holiness that you are set apart to accomplish for God something incredible. Like, what do you mean? Like, I have to go with you. But she didn't do that. She just politely said to him, she said, I will surely go with you. If leading you means I go with you, nevertheless, the road on which you're going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And so Deborah just says, if that's what it takes, if, if, if I have to go with you so you can follow God, I will go with you. I will walk with you as you walk with God. And so she goes. Deborah's desire, her call, was to help Barak discern the call of God, and instill in him a confidence in God. And I think there is an application here. Um, when you're trying to lead others to hear God's voice, like, and they look at you like you're an idiot, it can be so frustrating. You know the feeling? Like, if you've ever raised kids or ever tried to make a disciple, you're like, like, and it gets so, it gets so frustrating. You're like, God says you should do this. And you're like, I don't know if God really says that. It's like, no, no, no. It's in the Ten Commandments. God says you shall not murder. I don't know if God said that. It's like, no, he did. It's right here. And you're like, I don't know. If you knew what he did to me, it's like the dude looked at you funny. You don't get to kill him for it, right? And it can be so frustrating. And at that point, like, we just want to demean him and we want to tear him down and tell how dumb they are. Like, that's not helpful. You know what we do? We just continue to point people to God. This is who God is. This is what he's called you to accomplish. Make much of God and the rest will fall into place. One of my biggest convictions when it comes to making disciples is so often I try to tell people what God says. Hey, you should do this or you should do that. And honestly, most of the time I'm right. But it never goes anywhere. One of the biggest shifts I've made in the last few years is trying to be more like Deborah. Has not God said this? Help someone hear God's voice, and they will follow God with confidence. If you're raising kids, help them hear God's voice. You can tell them so you're blue in the face what you want them to do or what you don't want them to do. But it isn't until they hear it from God that it's going to carry them through for the rest of their life. If you're in a community group and you're working to make disciples, you can look at your, we can see other people's mess before they see it, right? You guys are going down a dumb road. I want to tell you this. 
it's going to fall on deaf ears. Lead people to hear the voice of God, and it will change the direction of their life. And God can accomplish immeasurably more through one person who hears his voice than through a thousand people that just show up to go through the motions. And so it was with Barak. Because of Deborah's patience but assertiveness, Barak um, calls 10,000 men. And we're going to, for the sake of time, fast forward through part of this story. But Barak goes and he calls 10,000 men, and they follow Barak because God was going before him. Verse 12 says, When Sisera, who was the enemy of God's people, was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all of his chariots. Have you ever noticed that when you try to follow God, when you ever try to lead people in the direction that God is going, like the full force of the enemy feels like it's weighing against you? Cicero didn't just call out 10 chariots or 20 chariots. He called out all 900. He emptied uh, the armory to attack the people of God. And all the men who were with him, from Harosheth Haglam to the river Kishon, he gathered the entire force of the enemy of God's people. Verse 14, and Deborah said to Barak, where she's right here there with him, continuing to help him hear God's voice up. For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. We don't have time for it, but in chapter 5, Deborah just sings a praise song where she kind of recaps what God did for his people. And in that song, she, she makes it clear that the Lord opened up the heavens and the waters just poured down. A torrential downpour came and turned all of the dirt where Barak's char- chariots were running into mud and bogged the chariots down. God went before his people. Barak uh, didn't have to lead the way. Sorry, sister's chariots. Barak didn't have to lead the way. He simply had to follow God, hear his voice, and follow him. And God would go to war for him. And Barak, verse 16, pursued the chariots and the army to Harisheth Haglam, all the, back, all the way back to where they were started. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. God completely wiped out his enemy. Verse 17, but Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazer, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And so this great commander of the enemy of God's people flees to the tent of a woman whose husband he knew. Verse 18, and Jael came out to meet Sister and said to him, turn aside, my Lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he started, turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin, skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him up. So now you have this great general who was waging war against God's people, hiding under a blanket, drinking milk like a child being tucked in by his mom. And he said to her, verse 20, stand at the opening of the tent. If any man comes and asks you, is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from his weariness. And in the most obvious words in all the Bible, so he died. This seems kind of obvious, right? Tent peg through the temple into the ground. Um, Probably could have left that out. But anyway, just for clarity, he died. Verse 22, And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man with whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. Verse 23, So on that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. In the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. All right, I know that's a long story, and it's kind of gruesome, 
and I'll spare you the details about the tent peg and all that thing, but basically, there's this woman named Deborah who knows the Lord and loves the Lord and hears his voice, and she calls Barak to be the person that God has called him to be. She helps him discern the call of God and instills in him a confidence that God can, in fact, follow through on the call he's placed on his life. And Barak goes and he gathers 10,000 people because when God is leading the way, we can lead others. And these 10,000 people, they go and they wage war against Sisera. And Sisera, this great general who was oppressing Israel for 20 years, runs and hides like a child. He meets his end in the tent of a housewife with a tent peg in her hand. But the moral of the story is verse 23. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. God completely destroyed the enemies of God who were oppressing his people. Now, when we read stories like this that are 3,000 years old, we, we often think like fascinating story, right? Like incredible woman, so much wisdom, but what in the world does this story have to do with me? You ever read stories like this? Like, first of all, you're like, Judges, like, I'm not sure the last time I read Judges, but you read stories like this in the Old Testament, you think, these things are like, they seem more like fairy tales than they do like fact. The truth is, these were real people living at a real time, following a very real God, and God put these stories in Scripture so that we can learn from them. Now, here's the thing. I don't think God is calling you to take a tent peg and drive it through someone's skull. So what do we glean from this lesson? I think the most incredible thing is that God still calls his people 3,000 years later to lead others to hear his voice. Lead others to hear his voice. The character traits that have come out of the judges so far that I have found most impressive are like uh, Othniel, this judge that we didn't know much about. He, all we really know about him is that the spirit of God was upon him that he was a man who was walking with the Holy Spirit, that it was God's power working through his life. And then Ehud had courage because God had called him. And Shamgar just took the things that God gave him, a ox goat of a donkey, and he drove back the enemies of Israel. These unimpressive people with unimpressive things following the most impressive of gods. And here Deborah, right in the middle of the book of Judges, this wise woman is helping people hear the voice of God. I'm convinced that the role of the church is to help people hear God's voice. Everything else flows downstream of that. Now, the role of the church is to make disciples. We talk about that. How do you make disciples? You teach them to obey what God has commanded. You help them hear God's voice. The role of the church is to, to go and evangelize the lost and share the good news of God's grace. Well, how do you do that? We go and we, we let them hear the gospel. Hear God's voice. In fact, the Apostle Paul would write a letter to the church uh, 1,500 years after the story of Deborah, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he would write this. He would say, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And that's how, I love when you find these verses, because you can find verses like the story of Deborah, and you think, that's a really cool story, but that's just Deborah. And then you get to the Corinthian passage, and it says, if anyone, like if anyone, like you or me, anyone means anyone, is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. He's just saying everyone who puts their faith in Jesus is made new by the person in the work of Jesus. He goes on, and he says, all of this is from God. Just like God was the one who went to war with Sisera, God was the one who won the victory. It is all from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, the church, the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. What Paul is saying, he goes on, he says, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. 
God is saying, like, the same thing that happened with Deborah, that if we know God, if we've heard his voice, if we put our faith in him, if he has gone to work in us, he's now working through us, that it is God making his appeal through us, that the voice of God, the message of God, the gospel of God, the goodness and grace of God would be made known to the world through the church, that we would help people hear God's voice. He goes on, he says this, he says, we implore you. Paul saying, man, we're begging you, we're urging you with everything we have on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And stop right there and say, if you're joining us for the first time or you've been with us for a long time and you've never put your faith in Jesus, the first step is to put your faith in God. To say, I want to know this God. Like, I want to make him known, but I can't lead someone to someone I don't know. I want to know God. Be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul says the church is making the appeal of Jesus to the world. We are here to lead others, to hear the voice of God. We can overcomplicate it. We can think about all the things the church is supposed to do, and man, there's plenty to do. But the core of who we are and what we're here for is to lead other people to hear his voice. John chapter 10, verse 27, those who follow me, Jesus says, they hear my voice. They can hear what I'm saying. They, they, they hear my voice through the studying of God's word. They can hear my voice through the gathering of God's people. They can hear my voice through the preaching of God's word. They know me, and, I, and they follow me. They hear my voice, and they follow me. I was on, a, on, I hate to admit, you ever get on a rabbit trail on YouTube? I was, a few days ago, I was online. I was supposed to be uh, doing something important, like, writing a sermon, and I got on YouTube. I don't even know how I ended up there, but I ended up on YouTube, and I started watching videos, and I kind of ended up on this rabbit trail, and like next thing you know, like uh, 10, 20, 30 minutes have passed, but I saw this video I thought was super intriguing. It was a video of all of these deaf kids who were hearing their parents speak for the very first time. And they're talking about the implants they're able to give. And it was a really fascinating story. I was watching their reactions. But one story, more than anything, I went back and I watched the videos, was a, a kid named Grayson Clamp. He was born without any nerves in either of his ears. So there was nothing connecting his ears to his brain. There was no, he was born, he was uh, three years old at the time. He had never heard a sound. He had never heard a bird chirp or a car horn. He had never heard any kind of noise. And so doctors wanted to perform a special surgery on him that had never been performed before. And they inserted a microchip into the brain to connect the brain's sound processing right under the brain's stem to stimulate hearing. So they, they, they gave him brain surgery, inserted this microchip in so he could hear. The operation took eight hours, four weeks of recovery before the chip could be turned on. But the video I saw was really cool. It was a doctor who had performed the surgery. It was Grayson's mom and Grayson's dad. And the doctor and the mom were sitting there together. The doctor had spent hours performing the surgery for Grayson, doing the hard work, and then there was his mom. But behind him sat his dad. And as soon as they turned the microchip on and the equipment that was attached to it, his dad behind him says, Grayson, daddy loves you. And like this little boy who had never heard anything before, never heard his dad's voice, his eyes lit up. And he like pointed and he turned around, he looked at his dad and he gave his dad a big hug. And I watched that video and I thought like my sheep hear my voice, I know them and they follow me. It's so cool that God stands behind us and says, son, daughter, I love you. But who are the unsung heroes? I think it's the doctor whose name was never mentioned in the article 
who did the hard work for eight long hours, digging in, cutting where he needed to cut, inserting what he needed to insert, inserting himself so Grayson could hear his dad's voice. That is the role of the church. Like when I look at the story of Deborah, she sat there under a tree day by day as people came to her for what reason? To help them hear the word of God. Barak, who was disinterested in hearing God's voice, she sent him and said, God has a calling on your life. It is more than just going through the motion. It is more than just working the field or going to work day in and day out. It is more than just going home with your family. God called you to make a difference. I look at the world around us and I think there are a world full of barracks. Everyone wants to be the military leader, but what if God has called us here to be more like Deborah, to hear his voice and to follow him and to make his voice known? Father, we're so thankful for your goodness and grace. What a privilege it is to gather together this Sunday and every Sunday to start our weekend worship, to sit under the authority of your word, to listen to you teach us. Father, I am so thankful that as I study your word, you teach me so that I can even pass on a glimpse of the things that you're trying to communicate to your church. Father, we hear your voice through your word, so we're so thankful that you preserved your word for us. But Father, your word, the stories of Deborah that are 3,000 years old have been preserved through human history so that we might know you, that we might hear your voice, that we might see who you are and how you work, that we might have clarity about who you're calling us to be, that we have been reconciled to God through the person and the work of Jesus. And now the role of the church is to reconcile the world to Jesus, to share that gospel message that God is more good and gracious than we can wrap our mind around, that he's using us to the hard work, the long work, the tedious work, to perform surgery, to help people hear the voice of their Heavenly Father for the very first time. Father, we love you, and we are so thankful that you would entrust us with the message that you died for. As we make much of you, we ask that you make yourself known to us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.